Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode from Going West 2011, Cooney Carr Jenkins and Alison Jones on their award-winning book Words Between Us, exploring the earliest experiences of Māori with the pen and the written word. Kia ora koutou, namihi nui, kia kōrua, Alison e Kuni. Welcome to the Going West Festival. Um, I'm introducing this session. Um, I've just grabbed the uh, mic off Murray. Um, I'm the secretary of the Going West Trust, so I'm allowed. <laughs> and I have the privilege of uh, working, um, assisting um, in the preparation for the opening of the, this exhibition that you are just seeing just a small part of um, at the back of the hall here that uh, Cooney and uh, Alison have curated. And it was a, a very exciting and different process to be involved in because the opening was uh, in a marquee tent attached to a whare nui uh, at a Waitangi tribunal hearing uh, for Ngāpui uh, in a small um, Bay of Islands uh, community. And uh, it was set up on grass and I've actually never been at an exhibition. It was there for a whole week while the tribunal was going on where there was so much animated interaction uh, with uh, these images from the very young to elders who were sometimes for the first time uh, interacting with uh, writing produced by their tipuna. And one of the services, the service that uh, Cooney and Alison have provided to those people and to the wider community is that they've liberated uh, these uh, Taonga from the archives. And although we're all allowed to go into these archives and look at these <coughs> items, um, there are quite a lot of barriers to people uh, that people may feel about that. And Cooney and Alison have um, brought them out. Um, and it's been wonderful to see uh, the interaction with them and uh, the creative conversations that have come about as a result. And. I'll hand over to them now to tell you more about the story. Karanga mai koutou, ngā kai whakarite o tēnei hui nui mō tātou, mō ngā taonga kua puta mai i wainga nui i Aotearoa. Mihi kauatu kia koe Rose, nā hau i whakatau i a māwa ko Alison. Greetings to all of you who... gathered here at this um, grand festival <clears throat> of the Going West um, program that has um, been here all weekend. It's a great honour for Alison and I um, to bring our part of our exhibition to be part of this um, wonderful event. <clears throat> the archival images that, we, um, that Rose was describing to you they're just a selection of our forthcoming book, um, He Kōrero, Words Between Us, the first Māori Pākehā conversations on paper. Uh, the book is due out from <coughs> Hoya Publications in December. We had hoped that they would be in time to be launched here. <coughs> now, this project started with a joint interest be- between Alison and I <coughs> of the establishment of the first school in New Zealand in 1816, and it certainly formed the backdrop of my PhD work, Um, and particularly the Māori involvement in that first school. Um, In the process of doing our research, we found these beautiful artefacts, some of which are demonstrated at the back of the room, and we decided to tell the larger story that fitted with these Um, artefacts in relation to the Māori engagement um, with pen and paper. And for me, that was a really exciting part of my um, search into how did schooling begin. To write about how these works on paper came to be made, and it's the, the basis of the story that we tell in our book. And it tries to make um, the Māori story very central 
So we have sourced um, many of the historical um, literature, but we've tried to tease out um, the Māori words that are in there to try and fathom what was the Māori um, agenda in, in participating in this, and in fact, how committed were they? As a result, our account of the educational relationship between Māori and Pākehā is very different <clears throat> from some other writers that focus on the pre-treaty period. Um, Alison will be our speaker for the day as we've got a limited time frame to get through. And so I'll let hand over to Alison Jones. Now, kia ora, Alison. Kia ora, Kuni. <clears throat> Tēnā koutou katoa, ngā mihi nui ki a koutou. Um, thanks, Kuni, for our little introduction. Um, what we've got, most of you have had a chance to look at the images that we have exhibited at the back, and as Kuni said, that's a fraction of a larger exhibition that we have, um, and the book is about those images. And what we've decided to do this evening is to run through a series of these images um, and, and just talk about them, really, um, quite briefly, um, and to bring to mind this incredible, intense interest that Māori had in writing um, that started way back in 1769 um, with um, the arrival in New Zealand of James Cook. And this, here, this image here, and I'm sorry if you can't see it very clearly, is um, from Joseph Banks's... Um, um, anyway, this is a page from Joseph Banks's diary, and he has started collecting words, Māori words, in 1769 um, from various places that Cook visited in New Zealand. Um, and he had to hire a Tahitian on board who, or from the Tahitian group, who enabled communication to occur between the Europeans and Māori. But already, we talk, um, historically, people talk about word collection. And Cooney and I talk about word giving rather than word collection, because we see this as a moment when Māori were giving their words, giving their names for the parts of their body and for places to Europeans to write down in this peculiar practice of writing. Um, and the engagement clearly is quite intense when you look at these lists of words, and these run down um, the head, the brow, the eyes, the eyebrows, the eyelids, the nose, the nostrils, the cheeks, the mouth, the teeth, the lips, the tongue. These just lists of intimate parts of the body um, where clearly a Māori person has stood and allowed their body to be po pointed at and they've provided the words um, to be written down um, on a piece of paper in this way that um, must have been quite astonishing. And there is a story that... Um, um, one of uh, Cook's men tells, actually, that when they returned on their next visit, they bought this um, vocabulary with them and read out some of it to Māori in another part of the island from where this was collected. And they were Māori was so um, desirous of having this piece of paper that they offered a lot of fish and various things for it, but they wouldn't. The um, Europeans didn't give up the paper. But there's this real desire for this object that could speak in the Māori language. Um, which must have been the most astonishing thing to hear, that it was one thing for Europeans to write down things on paper that spoke about European things and spoke in a European language, but to have words that actually spoke in the local language um, on this odd bit of paper under the control of Europeans must have been um, pretty amazing. This is an appalling... Um, thing you can't see. Luckily, this is one of the beautiful images that we have at the back. Um, this is the first um, use of pen and paper by a Māori person in 1793, um, which is actually uh, as a map of New Zealand that was drawn by a young man called Tukitahua, who, with his mate Huru, had been kidnapped off the coast of uh, north um, of Matodi and taken to Norfolk Island. Um, the people at Norfolk thought that Māori would be able to teach them how to make cloth out of flax. Um, not realising it was women's work, they 
stole a couple of young Māori men who'd come out to have a look at the ship on their waka, and even though they were told by their elders not to go on board, they, they did go on board and were kidnapped and taken to um, Australia initially, the first Māori to visit Australia, and then to Norfolk Island, where they did actually teach quite a bit about flax. Um, but this is a most beautiful map um, that was drawn by Tukitahu, who was attempting to teach um, Philip Gidley King, who was the governor of, New of Norfolk, about New Zealand. And you can see on this one side is um, what we know now as the South Island, the island there, um, where the Ponamu comes from. And he told the uh, Philip Gidley King about the Ponamu in the South Island. And then the upper part of the map, um, he didn't know very much below Hauraki, and he, he said to um, Gidley King, that's Hauraki. So this little bit here is basically the Kaipara down, so he wasn't really sure about that, so he did a squiggly line, but the rest of it is Northland, and you can see Hiriringa Wairua, the path of the spirit going through the centre of the land up to a beautiful tree at Cape Reinga. Um, so that was drawn in 1793, um, and there are some very beautiful little um, fuddy on there too that he, um, he drew where he lived and where his chief lived. And Kuneva and I have just recently been up there and looked at those sites um, near Taipa actually um, in Doubtless Bay. This is just a detail uh, from that map um, that was drawn with a quill on paper. Well, it was initially on the, drawn on the ground but he was asked to do it on paper. And so you can see the path um, to uh, Cape Reinga or um, to, the, to the end of the island where the spirits leave. This is a, a, a picture of a young man called Maui who um, nobody knows very much about, but who we find a fascinating figure who actually went when he was eight. Um, he heard of the adventures of Tuki and Huru um, because Tuki and Huru were returned home by Philip Gidley King, um, and they came home with potatoes, introduced potatoes to New Zealand, um, and really told a story about the kawana, um, the governor of um, um, Norfolk, who had treated them so well. And so the reputation of Pahiha in their own, you know, in other lands was becoming really spreading. Um, and this young man here, Maui, when he was only about eight or ten, he got on a ship wanting to go overseas and, and, and travel the world and look and find out where these Pakias were coming from. And so this would have been in about 1804, 1805. Um, and he went off actually um, with a Māori sailor and ended up in, in um, Norfolk. And he was went to school in Norfolk, first Māori to ever go to a school. And he actually ended up going to Australia and then he went to England um, where he learnt Euclidean geometry, architecture. He was training to be a teacher. Um, he actually did teach in England, in London. Um, and unfortunately, as with many Māori who travelled in this very, very early period, he died um, in England. He was only about 20 when he died. Um, yeah, he died in 1816. So, yes, he died of um, an appalling disease, um, which was described in detail by his benefactors, but we don't quite know what it was. Um, but that's um, a rather beautiful little portrait of him looking rather like a, a young Englishman. He did this bit of writing, um, which is headed up natives of the South Seas. This was copied. Um, it was a proclamation um, which was written very early on. I think this was, eight, this was 1813, one of the first attempts by um, Europeans in Australia to, to control Europeans who were coming to New Zealand shores and stealing food, stealing women, behaving really badly. So Māori actually travelled from the Bay of Islands, including a particular chief called Tupahi from the Bay of Islands, went to see the governor in um, New South Wales uh, and complained bitterly about the behaviour of Europeans. So there was an attempt to control Europeans who were coming over here. And this was one of the proclamations which Maui, the Matt boy you just seen, was practising his writing on, and he did this um, wonderful bit of copywriting, which is a proclamation to keep um, the captains of ships under control. As a result of Maori complaints in Australia, the um, 
governors there decided that Māori were not to be removed from New Zealand um, as sailors or, or in any other way um, unless there was the permission was given of their chief. And this is an interesting um, little document which is from 1815, a beautiful piece of writing there which you can see has got a cross by King Tera. And um, this is, um, his name was actually Tara, who was the far, or an uncle or a relation of Maui, um, was giving permission for Maui to travel, to go to England. And so this was being sought, and permission was being sought not just verbally, but on paper. And Maori were, hadn't really particularly encountered paper or writing for themselves. And so this was this mark, this cross by Tara here, who was a very, very elderly chief, um, came from around the area of um, Kororareka in the southern Bay of Islands. Um, to me, that's an absolutely beautiful mark. It's one of the first signatures. I mean, no doubt Māori sailors had to sign like that when they were taken on on ships in terms of conditions. But here's an elderly chief, a rangatira, who is so involved in and interested in this new technology that he was prepared to put his mark um, on the page. That's a pretty appalling thing. Um, but it's, it's up there to remind me that after there was, there was this huge amount of movement between uh, the Bay of Islands and Australia. And um, one particular chief who's, have we got him there? No. Um, his name was Ruatara. Many chiefs, many young chiefs went from the Bay of Islands to, um, to, to Australia in that first um, decade, really, of the 19th century. And one of those was Ruatara. And Ruatara, when he got to Australia in about 1805, I think was the first time he went there, 1806, 1807, that period, um, he met in Australia a man who um, was fascinated by Māori, and his name was Samuel Marsden. And you all know Samuel Marsden's name. He was the chief chaplain in um, the convict colony there. Um, and he absolutely loved Māori, and he used to sort of collect them um, when they arrived on ships as sailors or when they arrived visiting, trying to visit the chief. Um, and he took them to his um, place in Parramatta, which of course is just up the Parramatta River, west of Sydney, where he had a, uh, a house, a, a dwelling for them to live in. He fed them. He taught, um, taught them to um, farm, using uh, European farming methods, and he actually even gave some land to Ruatara, who went there. Um, now, Ruatara never signed anything, unfortunately, and so that land, we presume, just resumed, um, went back into Marsden's estate. Um, but we think it's quite interesting that Marsden gave Ruatara land, and later when Marsden came, the first Pākehās in New Zealand, land was given to him. I mean, it was sold, but it was it was seen, we believe, as a kind of land-for-land -land deal. But the land over there in Australia was not um, kept by Māori. Although those of you who know Parramatta will be interested to know that there's a little park in Parramatta called Rangihu, um, which is a park which is a remnant of Samuel Marsden's farm right down by the Parramatta River, named after Ruatara's pa, Rangihoa, in the northern um, Bay of Islands, which is, it still exists, and uh, Māori do use it, Ngāpui in particular use it till today. Um, anyway, this, this is getting away from this letter. Ruatara decided when he was um, in Australia, and he actually did travel to England, it's a bit of a long story, but he decided he wanted, um, he saw schools in Australia, and he decided he wanted a teacher to come to New Zealand. There were no Pākehās living in New Zealand at that time, um, and he decided that he wanted a teacher to come, so he asked Marsden to send a teacher. And Marsden did send a teacher, Thomas Kendall, and this is the letter that Marsden sent. Well, it's actually not the letter, it's a copy of the letter in, Ma in Kendall's hand, in Kendall's journal, because we couldn't find the original letter. But he wrote a letter, Marsden wrote a letter to um, Ruatara in 1814, 
um, and said, here, I have sent you the teacher. And he, that, and he said, you will be good to my men and I will be good to you in this letter, which says that along the bottom there. And Cooney and I were very moved by this statement because it was, a, a it was something in writing, it was a letter to a chief to say, we, you have asked us to come to your country, we are coming to your country, we will be good to you if you will be good to us. In a sense, it was like a very simple treaty. And this is in 1814, you know, well before the treaty. Um, and it seemed very simple and straightforward and to us very, very moving. Um, so Ruatara um, and um, uh, two other chiefs actually ended up going to Australia in 1814 on the ship The Active to get um, the first Pākehā settlers to come to New Zealand. And on the ship on the way over to Australia um, with the, were a number of Māori, including the three chiefs, Ruatara, Korokoro, who was from the southern Bay of Islands and Hongihika. And now most of you know the great Ngāpuhi chief Hongihika, I presume, do you? Yes, who's known as a, as a fearsome and, and dreadful warrior. Well, this uh, Hongihika was actually on the ship. He knew that he needed to get Pākehā. They were the latest commodity and had to be had. Um, and he wanted a piece of that action and went to Australia to see if he could get Pākehās to come and be under his rule and be part of his tribal group. On the way to Australia, he learnt to do some letters, and these are letters drawn with a quill by Hongihika. And there are four beautiful pages, and they're actually up there, um, of his letters, which we love. Um, he was a master carver. He was very skilled at the tuhi, the, the mark on the face that was made before the uh, moko was carved, the ta moko was carved into the face. He was a genius. He um, could fix guns without being taught. He was, the Europeans absolutely gobsmacked by his, his absolute genius. But he made these beautiful letters. He was very interested in writing. He never actually learned to write, but he was interested in shapes. You can, um, many of us learn to write like this. <laughs> okay, so then what happened was um, um, the Pākehās arrived, and um, many of you will know that they arrived in 1814, the first Pākehās settlers, and they landed at the base of Ruatara's Pā in the um, northern Bay of Islands, where Ruatara and Hongi had told them they must live. They were not allowed to live anywhere else. They came to New Zealand on condition that they were to live in this one place. And an interesting story, what happened um, just before they left Australia with the first settlers, and there were about 14 um, Pākehā settlers coming over, somebody reminded them to look at what had happened in Australia to the indigenous people there and not to invite the Europeans to come to New Zealand because the same thing would happen, that the European numbers would increase and Māori would be reduced to slaves. And um, Hongihika and Korokoro and Ruatara had a very, very difficult couple of days on the first two days on the ship, um, very worried about whether they were doing the right thing and in inviting Pākehās to come to New Zealand. And in the end, they decided they had to do it. Marsden, um, who was actually coming back on the ship with his settlers, said, well, you know, if you don't want us to come, we will, we will go home. We won't come. Um, but, of course, Hungi uh, would have realised that he didn't have much um, option because Pākehā were going to come <laughs> at some point and he might as well have them. Um, so they agreed to them coming. And this is a picture um, which was actually um, in the Auckland Weekly News in 1914 um, to celebrate 100 years since the arrival of the first Pākehā, um, done by Kenneth Watkins. And we love this particular rendition of this image. The first Pākehās have arrived. They're sitting on the beach over to the right. This is two days after they've arrived. We can see down there, um, I don't know whether you can see it very well, We can see um, Samuel Marsden standing in a pulpit, speaking uh, to the people. And next to him, in military costume, which he'd picked up in Australia, uh, is Ruatara, who could speak English. Hongiheka was never a very English, good English speaker and was never very interested in speaking English. But um, this image is drawn to celebrate the 100 years since the first sermon in New Zealand. 
Now, Cooney and I argue in our book that this was not a sermon. There was not a sermon. And we've already got into a lot of trouble with Anglicans, and in another three years, it's going to be 200 years since the first Pākehās came to New Zealand and the first sermon was preached. Um, and we argue that this was not a sermon because although Marsden, it was Christmas Day, uh, he was doing the Anglican Christmas uh, sermon um, and singing his songs and so on and so forth, um, he was speaking English. And the 400 Māori there didn't speak English and Marsden did not speak Māori. Um, and all the time we know from the diaries that Marsden was calling out, uh, I mean, the people in the audience were calling out, you know, what the hell's going on? What's he, what's he saying? Uh, and Ruatara would be saying, just taiho, you know, just wait. Um, and then at the end, um, Marsden gave what, sorry, Ruatara gave what Marsden thought was a translation um, and then the people rose in a great haka as the, um, as the party left the scene to go back onto their ship. And Marsden recorded that this was, the haka was in joy at the reception of the gospel for the first time in New Zealand. <laughs> and um, that's how we remember it today, as the moment when the gospel was first received. Um, now, Cooney and I are pretty dead sure that Ruatara was not giving a literal translation of, Lo, I bring you great tidings of glad joy, for unto us today a child is born, etc. Um, we're very sure that he would have been doing a very impassioned political speech to the people to say, these are our friends, they come from Australia, they have looked after us, they have housed and fed us, they are, they, and we have invited them here. You must protect them, you must build houses for them, you must not steal from them, and you certainly must not let them be stolen away because they are our Pākehās, they're nobody else's Pākehās. So <laughs> we keep them here, right here. Um, and so we're pretty sure that would have been the speech, and that ain't no sermon, I reckon. Oh, yes, Kearney wants us to tell about the porphyry. We're not going to get through all the slides. Um, the day before this, there's a very interesting moment that's mentioned just in passing by Anne Salmond and various other people. We have never, and um, Michael King, we've never, ever seen any explanation of it, but all the history books um, mention in passing a sham fight that occurred on the day before this which was the day after the um, settlers had arrived. And it's described in huge, vivid detail by a couple of, or three actually, um, Europeans who were on board the ship at the time. The most extraordinary event where Koro Koro came out to the active that was out in the bay here, collected Marsden and um, Nicholas. Nicholas, his friend John Nicholas, who was a writer, brought them into the shore with these amazing huge waka and everyone was dressed up in ochre and korowai and feathers and everything was happening. And there was this huge ambush from the valley that you can see at the back there with Ruatara's men coming, rushing onto the beach. There's this enormous kind of sham fight um, which included Ruatara's wife who was dressed in this red satin dress that had been brought back from her from Australia um, and she had weapons and she was sweating profusely and leading the, the charge and it was a most incredible story and people just mention it as in passing as a sham fight and Cooney um, said well it seems to me that this was a major porphyry um, a, a kind of greeting that came in, a wakataki that came in from the water to greet these first Pākehā settlers, which is a very, very significant event in bringing the Pākehās into the body of the people um, and making them part of the, the people in the northern, um, the northern Bay of Islands. And it's completely ignored um, in historical books. This is, this is the more common rendition of the first... Um, sermon, and you can see a very different kind of perspective um, and a more commonly understood one, with, which centralises um, Marsden. Now, Marsden was there for a few days, uh, a few weeks, sorry, in um, the Northern Bay of Islands, and he got his little settlers settled. He, um, he bought about 200 acres for, I think, how many? 12 guns, was it? Um, and these, um, the day before he left, now, we don't have, unfortunately, the deed 
um, of, for the sale of that first bit of land, which was called Oihi, um, Māori know it, know it as Tohohi, um, in the northern Bay of Islands, which is actually now where the Marsden Cross is, um, these are the signatures that were put on that deed. The deed hasn't been found, but these are um, copies of it that are in the missionary register. And that is the uh, face signature of Te Uri Kanai, who was the um, owner of the land at the time, and that um, was made by Hungihika. So Hungihika was very interesting that he actually came up with that idea He'd, he'd held a quill, he knew how to hold, use it. He came up with the idea of using the moko on the paper rather than a cross, and also the, a small mark of um, Tūrio Kanai's um, brother, who also owned the land. Whoopsie. Then um, in 1819, a new group of Pākehās um, came, and Hongiheka this time did his own moko, as you can see there, um, and this is a small moko of rewa. Um, to sell uh, a lot of land around um, Kirikiri, um, 13,000 acres, and I think he sold them for 24 guns. Um, and I was kept thinking, now, Hongiheka wasn't dumb. <laughs> he was a genius. How come the others could get 200 acres for 12 guns and he got... He sold 13,000 acres for 24 guns or something. Um, and I'm pretty sure that, well, we're pretty sure that Hongi, um, for him, the exchange of the guns was important for him because he was amassing guns. But what was important was the sense of the Pākehā were now part of his rohi, part of his iwi, part of his people. And this, this signing seemed to be part of the process of making the European people Māori people in a sense. Um, and we see evidence of this a bit later in, in one of the first books that was written um, using Māori language, talked about making Pākehā Māori. And it seems that these signatures, from what we can read, played that kind of role. So it wasn't that there were the guns that were important, it was the relationship that was important that was sealed by the mana, the considerable mana of Hongiheka uh, through, through the marks on his face, which was actually would have been a very significant thing for such a big... Um, a high um, rangatira to do. That's a uh, detail of his absolutely beautiful objects. That's a glob of um, ink, I mean wax. Then um, in 1816, um, as Ruatara had asked, uh, school, a school was started. Um, and that building was built um, at Rangihoa, and in 1816, on the 12th of August, it was opened. This is the very first roll of the first school, um, and as you can see, things didn't change much in 200 years. Um, the first pupil, there are about uh, 24 turned up on the first day and 33 by the end of the month, ranging from age 20 to 7. Um, and the first one on that list is Tofa, a young man who is 17, the son of Tupahi, the one who'd gone to Australia to complain about Europeans. He was the teacher assistant at the school, and he would have played a very significant role in um, helping the um, local people to allow their children to come and spend time at the school and have um, their, these crosses made to show they were there. Um, and they were learning monosyllables and... Um, alphabets, and I have a copy, a facsimile copy of the very first book that was used in the school, um, and it was written by Kendall, um, and he learnt his Māori from Tuai, a young man that you'll meet in a minute. Oh, that's just a picture of Rangihoa um, with the schoolhouse and the first Pākehā settlers um, in their little, that's where the Marsden Cross is now. So if you haven't been down to the Marsden Cross, we do recommend you get down there and see. And that is uh, the past site, which just looks rather strange, as does the ship. But anyway, um, that's held in Australia, that picture, we rather like it. This is the little book I'm talking about here. Um, the New Zealanders' first book. It's called A Korao Nor New Zealand. Um, and it's supposed to be Koraro, because Koraro is the word in the book for Korero. For, for words, um, but we think that the printer lost an R um, on the title, so it made it Korao. Um, the New Zealanders' first book being an attempt to compose some lessons for the instructions of natives, and this is what it looks like inside. 
with Māori um, on the one side and Pākehā writing on the other, you can see that there he's just starting, um, Kendall is just starting to try and write Māori in um, a phonetic kind of way. Um, and so this was the first attempt. And this was printed in 1815, um, which was just a year after the Pākehās arrived, and Kendall had been working on learning Māori because he was being taught very well by a young man called Tuai who had gone to Australia um, and was teaching Kendall um, to speak Māori enough that he could write down these um, little exercises. Um, as I said, Tuai was going, like a lot of other young men, Māori men, was going to Australia at the time, and we quite like this early picture of Australia in the 1820s, sorry, um, because it has some Māori in the picture. Māori were actually very common in Australia um, in the um, early 1820s and in the second part of the first decade of the 19th century. And in fact, um, Marsden said, the colony is never free of these natives, these particular natives. Now, Marsden was very delighted at this, but Marsden did not like Aboriginal people, and he didn't like the Irish <laughs> equally. Um, but he did think that Māori were a superior group of people, um, and he, um, he gave them a good time in Australia. And many actually attended school. There was a school that he set up, a seminary he set up in, in um, Parramatta, um, and many, many young men, Māori men, went there um, to school, and that school started in 1815 and officially closed in about 1823 because 13 of the young men who went there died um, of um, food, some food problem. This is the gorgeous Tuai who um, taught Kendall, the first teacher, how to speak Māori, and he was in Australia at the school that we just mentioned that Marsden had in Parramatta, and he and his mate, who's even more gorgeous, um, Titeri, were over there. Um, they were both two young um, rangatira from the Bay of Islands, and they decided they wanted to go to England. We think probably because Tuai's brother, Koro Koro, who you've already heard about, wanted his settlers, because the Pākehās had arrived in the, and Hongihika had grabbed them. They were living in the north. Korokoro was from the south of the Bay of Islands and he needed his Pākehā. So we think that um, his younger brother Tuai, who, was, who spoke very good English, um, would go to England to try and find some settlers. So these two set off. When they were in, they went to England in 1818, and which was a very dangerous thing for them to do, of course, because so many young men who went there died um, from the weather or from disease. Um, and while they were there, they got very ill um, and they were sent to Shropshire to recover. And while they were there, they did these beautiful images. Some of them you can see at the back. Um, and we think that it's quite possible that they were wanting to come home when they died. They were very worried that they, well, we think they would have been very worried that they would have died in England and their bodies would not come home and this would have been a complete horrible thing to contemplate for them. And so we think these waka were a way of bringing them, bringing them home um, should they die. Um, Tom uh, Tuai, who was then called Thomas Tuai, who wrote those words at the top there, he was learning to write, he drew these beautiful images of his brother's face, that's Korokoro, um, and there's another one at the back there too, that he drew completely from memory um, in detail, drawing his brother to him, his older brother, he was seeking his guidance and seeking his help, wanting him to be present with him in England, we think, um, as he was so ill. And so he drew these beautiful images of Korokoro's face. This actually lives in London, this image. Um, now, while they were there, how much longer have we got? Got a few more minutes. Um, while they were in... While they were in... Um, England, Tuai and Titeri wrote this series of about 18 letters, and the thing that's incredible to us is that no one has ever written about Tuai and Titeri in these letters. Um, and they give the most incredible account of what was happening for these young men in, in England in 1818. They were in Shropshire, where the Industrial Revolution was just going crazy. And they wrote these letters about um, what they were doing there. They saw the iron run down like water. They saw rope as big as my body. 
They saw, you know, these were the quotes from their letters. They saw hundreds and thousands of guns in the Tower of London. And, of course, this was a revelation. Not just that Rangatira has a gun. Everybody has a gun. That's how you fight. That's how the Europeans do it. We've got to do it like that too. Um, this a revelation about fighting and guns. Um, and they went to a zoo. Um, they made China at, at, at China Works. They made bottles at Bottle Works. They were fated. Um, and I'm actually going over to Birmingham um, in October, and already they've said there are some diaries of young women over there who've written about these Māori who are visiting in 1818. We do know that one of these young women found her way into Titeri's bedroom one night, and Titeri told the missionaries who were his hosts that nothing happened, um, and they were full of praise for Titeri's very staunch and good behaviour. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Um, this and Titeri did promise to send her a lock of his hair. Oh yes, just a minute about those. Um, I'm saying I'm rushing really. Um, the, the letters they didn't know how to write. Maori still at the stage were not writing independently at all. Um, so what they did, they spoke good English. They spoke their letters to their friend Francis Hall, who copied those onto a slate. And then they copied from the slate, the Tuai and Titeri copied from the slate onto paper. So they actually were writing, they wrote 18 letters by copy drawing, copy writing if you like. Um, so we still get their voice, um, but they couldn't read back what they had written. Now um, by 1820, Hongiheka um, and his um, friend Waikato went to England um, because Tuai and Titeri had come back with stories about England, so Hongiheka decided he was up there, especially because there's all those guns over there. Um, and he went, and as part of what he did there, and this also is what Tuai and Titeri did, they went to, um, he went to Cambridge University, Hongiheka, with um, Waikato, uh, Waikato. They went to Waikato University. Uh, <laughs> Cambridge University, um, and worked with a professor, a language professor there called um, Samuel Lee, and wrote the next book, the second New Zealand book, um, which is this one here, um, where the, the, um, with Samuel Lee attempting to standardise Māori um, better than Kendall had. And you can see um, this is one of the pages, and the reason I picked this one here is that I talked to you before about the... See, um, just here. Ka Māori tia te Pākehā. Are the Europeans naturalised? Are the, are the Europeans becoming Māori? Becoming people of the land? Becoming ordinary? And we, we find that a really interesting phrase or interesting sentence to think about in the way that Māori were thinking about Europeans and Pākehās in New Zealand at that time. Um, by this stage, the second group of Pākehās had arrived. But this is, this is actually one of the original um, copies of that, of that book. Um, and these are pictures from that one. Then we have, um, in the schools, we have um, a co few copy books. This one by Tapahika, who was learning to write um, beautiful writing, um, and again, we some of us learnt to write like this. We come to now a young man called Hungi, um, who was a distant, we don't quite know his relation to Hungi Hika, but his um, father t fought with Hungi Hika, and he was called Hungi. There he is in a dogskin um, korowai. He was to become a very, very important um, writer for Māori. He was a star scholar at the second, um, third school that was set up in New Zealand at Kerikeri. Um, and he was the first one, first Māori person to write completely independently. And he wrote this letter. This is the first letter, the first bit of Māori writing that exists um, that was written independently. And it addresses Etetini Rangatira Oropi to the many chiefs of Europe. Now, this young man was only about 10 when he wrote it, and this is an incredible letter that is addressing the chiefs of Europe and saying, I'm coming to visit you. I want to know what it's like in Europe. I want to see your houses, and I want to find out whether your chiefs are hostile. And I also want to very importantly find out, this is what translations that we've made, I very importantly want to find out what happens, how do you decide 
um, whether a Pākehā over there is, is good or bad. Now, this is a very important point that he couldn't work out because the missionaries kept saying, if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. And Māori for many, many years were uh, rather unconvinced by this, um, but also very confused. I mean, how could you tell? And so this young man here was definitely going to find out when he got to England, he said, um, how they worked out the system. So we rather liked um, Hongi. He, um, he wrote this letter. Whoops, that's the end of him. Um, and he, he actually went on to um, write the text of the Whakaputanga, um, which is the Declaration of Independence, was actually determined by Busby, but um, Hongi, that particular Hongi, whose name was Eruera Pari Hongi, because Māori at that time often took on names of famous European people, even if they'd never met them. And Edward Parry was a famous um, English Antarctic explorer, and clearly Hongi rather liked the idea of the explorer, so he called himself Eruera Pari Hongi after Edward Parry. Um, but he um, wrote the words down, the Māori words down, on the paper for the Declaration of Independence in 1835. So that's where we're going to finish, really. It's, it's just a sort of a cook's tour, as it were, um, through um, this very early period from about 1793, if you want to go back to Cook, 1769, right through to here, 1825, this letter was done, still well before the treaty, this intense period of engagement between Māori and Pākehā, that, and some of which is being captured and held in the archives. And we're telling these stories on, you know, using these archives to help us tell the stories about their, about where they, where they started, um, and and it's it's really the engagement that that we've been very interested in, and the the the, pro, the positive engagement that occurred at that time, and we're hoping that our book will help people think um, differently and more positively and more creatively about the current um, educational relationship also between Māori and Pākehā. So kia ora. Alison. Alison, we do have time for a few questions if people have got them. Um, we are going to move on to a session with Don McGlashan soon, but he's very graciously said that he could uh, hold back a little bit. And we don't want to cut this short. I've got a question, just a point. That Rangi painting, I've got a feeling, is that on loan at the moment to the, uh, the art gallery? I haven't seen it there, it could be. It is housed in Australia. Oh, okay. It's quite possible. Yeah, there's actually um, a very beautiful painting by Augustus Earle um, of that similar view, but taken along the beach, uh, which is is of the same settlement about the same time. Mm. Are there any other questions? Oh, come. Hang on. Look, we'll start here. Hello. You talk about the the land being sold to the Parker when they came. I understand that the land still belonged to the, to the Maori and that they um, had seen the system of buying and selling and they thought that they would exchange uh, money for the Pākehā to come and live with them, mm -hmm. but the land still remained within the tribe. Mm, mm, kia ora. Yes, um, I think you're very right. When I said the word sold when I was speaking, I heard myself say it and sort of went, no, that's not what I meant. Um, when um, they, those deeds that we saw, um, those first two land transactions, the Oihi one and the Kirikiri one, it's very clear from our reading um, of the um, notes that were taken during those transactions that... Maori, the Māori who were there, although there were guns and so on exchanged, fully assumed, believed that the land was still the land of the people, um, and but that the Pahia were now living there, um, and were living there permanently too. Um, but it wasn't a sense. I, I don't think we. It's absolutely the case that we didn't get a sense of um, selling in, in the way that that it is um, understood now. And I think that people must have got a terrible shock because two minutes after um, that first land deal was so, uh, signed, 
Marsden made a speech to the assembled Māori, saying, okay, now that we've got this land, <laughs> um, you people from any part of the Bay of Islands can come here whenever you want, and you, we will receive you. Now, nothing was written about that by Pākehā because they wouldn't have understood what was going on, but we would know pretty carefully, and it is the case, actually, well, I'm wrong, it was written about by some Pākehā, they did recognise that Māori would not come to that place. Anybody wouldn't just turn up. It was Hongiheka's land, and Hongiheka wasn't having people there just because those Pākehās thought that they owned it. Um, and so already Marsden had kind of walked into this completely, you know, cultural... Uh, it's my land now, so I'll invite whoever I like to come over here. But nobody came. Well, people only came, you know, very carefully with Hongi's say-so. Um, and, so, and that was very much a demonstration of that sense, that things remained the same, except the Pākehās were now living here, on our land. Yeah. So kia ora for that statement. Yeah. But even having said that, though, Alison, um, even having said that, uh, we know that that whole 200-acre block is now a gated community and it, it, it's under non-New Zealand ownership and that the whole peninsula, not just the pa itself, that whole peninsula, and, it, and from those who are applying to the Waitangi Tribunal for addressing the issue, um, it is based on that deed that we saw, that that land was actually sold as a bona fide sale. That's what is argued. That's yes. what's being argued. They're That's the what the Na Crown is arguing. Yeah, the Ngāti Torahina people are the people of that area, uh, and they take a different view. Mm. Yes, and, and in the his history book, it's recorded that it was Ruatara was of Ngāti Rehia descent, and Ellison's in my research have found that they were the Ngāti Torahina. And so they get very sensitive when we mention Ngāti Rehia. But we still do that because it's in the history book. We need to show that we are reflecting the evidence that we've collected. But the evidence that we've collected in these last uh, couple of years especially tell us that it's the Ngāti Torehina, and they're not even mentioned. And we get the Marsden Cross to say only... Uh, Marsden was there, and you miss out the 400 people who were there. So we think that Words Between Us is a really critical addition to the, um, the history of what is New Zealand and the relationship um, that took place at that time. And Alison and I working together trying to demonstrate that relationship that Māori and Pākehā, we need to go back and carefully look at our history to listen to all of the voices who were there. Some wrote and some have it in their memories and in their whakapapa. Kia ora. Rose, could I hand back to you now? Kia ora. I often hear students who are listening to Judy and Elsa sit there and go, I can listen to this all day. And we don't have that amount of time, but I just remind you that down by the exhibition there are little flyers about the book that will be coming out in a few months. So if you want to remind yourself to look out for it, please uh, help yourself to one. And I'd just like to show our appreciation for their time today. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.